Section Four of the Broad Highway by Geoffrey Farnell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Leader. Book One, Chapter Eight, which concerns itself with a farmer's whiskers and a waistcoat. How long I slept, I have no idea. But when I opened my eyes, it was to find the moon shining down on me from a cloudless heaven. The wind also had died away. It seemed my early fears of a wild night were not to be fulfilled, and for this I was sufficiently grateful. Now as I lay, blinking up to the moon, I presently noticed that we had come to a standstill, and I listened expectantly for the jingle of harness and creak of the wheels to recommence. Strange, said I to myself, after having waited vainly some little time, and wondering what could cause the delay. I sat up and looked about me. The first object my eyes encountered was a haystack, and, beyond that, another, with, a little to one side, a row of barns, and again beyond these a great rambling farmhouse. Evidently the wain had reached its destination, wherever that might be, and the sleepy wagoner, forgetful of my presence, had tumbled off to bed the which I thought so excellent an example, that I lay down again, and, drawing the loose hay over me, closed my eyes, and once more fell asleep. My second awakening was gradual. I at first became conscious of a sound, rising and falling with a certain monotonous regularity, that my drowsy ears could make nothing of. Little by little, however, the sound developed itself into a somewhat mournful melody or refrain, chanted by a not unmusical voice. I yawned, and, having stretched myself, sat up to look and listen, and the words of the song were these. When a man who muffins cries, cries not when his father dies, tis a proof that he would rather have a muffin than his father. The singer was a tall, strapling fellow with a good-tempered face, whose ruddy health was set off by a handsome pair of black whiskers. As I watched him, he laid aside the pitchfork he had been using, and approached the wagon, but, chancing to look up, his eye met mine, and he stopped. Hello! he exclaimed, breaking short off in the middle of a note. Hello! Hello, said I. What be doing up there? I was thinking, I returned, that under certain circumstances I, for one, could not blame the individual mentioned in your song for his passionate attachment to muffins. At this precise moment a muffin, or say five or six, would be highly acceptable personally. Be you partial to muffins, then? Yes, indeed, said I, more especially saying I have not broken my fast since midday yesterday. Well, and what be doing in my hay? I have been asleep, said I. Well, and what business have you got a-sleepin' and a-snorin' in my hay? I was tired, said I, and uh, in nature her custom holds, let shame say what it will. Still, I do not think I snored. How do I know that? or you, for that matter," rejoined the farmer, stroking his glossy whiskers. How swell! If you be quite awake, come on down out of my hay. 
As he said this, he eyed me with rather a truculent air. Likewise, he clenched his fist. Thinking it wisest to appear unconscious of this, I nodded affably, and, letting myself down from the hay, was next moment standing beside him. "'Supposin' I was to thumpy on the nose?' he inquired. "'What for?' "'For makin' so free with my hay.' "'Why, then,' said I, "'I should earnestly endeavour to thump you on yours.' The farmer looked me slowly over from head to foot, with a dawning surprise. "'Thought you was a common tramper, I did,' said he. "'Why, so I am,' I answered, brushing the clinging hay from me. "'Trampers o' the road don't wear gentlemen's clothes. Leastways I never see one as did.' Here his eyes wandered over me again, from my boots upward. Halfway up they stopped, evidently arrested by my waistcoat, a flowered satin of the very latest cut, for which I had paid forty shillings in the haymarket, scarcely a week before. And as I looked down at it, I would joyfully have given it, and every waistcoat that was ever cut, to have had that forty shillings safe back in my pocket again. That be a mighty fine waistcoat, sir. Do you think so? said I. Ah, that I do. What might be the cost of a waistcoat the like of that now? I paid forty shillings for it in the haymarket in London scarcely a week ago, I answered. The fellow very slowly closed one eye at the same time striking his nose three successive raps with his forefinger. Come on, said he. Nonetheless, it's true, said I. Any man as would give forty shillin' for a garment as is no mortal good again the cold, not reachin' far enough, even if it do be silk, and all worked with little flowers, is a damned fool. Assuredly, said I, with a nod. Howsomever, he continued, it's a handsome waistcoat, there's no denyin', and well worth a woman's lookin' at, with a proper man inside of it. Not a doubt of it, said I. I mean, said he, scratching his ear, and staring hard at the handle of the pitchfork, a chap with a fine pair of whiskers, say. Hmm, said I. Now, woman, he went on, shifting his gaze to the top button of his left gaiter, woman is uncommon fond a good pair of whiskers, leastways, so I've heard. Indeed, said I. Few women can look upon such things unmoved, I believe, and nothing can set off a pair of fine black whiskers better than a flowered satin waistcoat. That's so, nodded the farmer. But, unfortunately, said I, passing my hand over my smooth lip and chin, I have no whiskers. No, returned the farmer, with a thoughtful shake of the head. Leastways none as I can observe. Now you have said I. So they do tell me, he answered modestly. And the natural inference is that you ought to have a flowered waistcoat to go with them. Quay, that's true to be sure, he nodded. The price of this one is fifteen shillings, said I. That's a lot of money, master, said he, shaking his head. It's a great deal less than forty, said I. And Ten is less than fifteen, and a ten shilling is my price. What do you say? Come now. You drive a hard bargain, said I, but the waistcoat is yours at your own price. 
So saying, I slipped off knapsack and coat, and, removing the garment in question, having first felt through the pockets, handed it to him, whereupon he slowly counted the ten shillings into my hand, which done, he sat down upon the shaft of a cart nearby, and, spreading out the waistcoat on his knees, looked it over with glistening eyes. Forty shillin' you paid for an up to London?' said he. Forty shillin' it were, I think.' Forty shillings,' said I. "'Ecod, it's a sight of money. But it's a grand waistcoat, ah, that it is.' "'So you believe me now, do you?' said I, pocketing the ten shillings. "'Well,' he answered slowly, "'I won't go so fur as that. "'But tis a mighty fine waistcoat, there's no denying, "'and must a cost a sight of money, a powerful sight.' "'I picked up my knapsack and, slipping it on, "'took my staff and turned to depart. "'There's a mug of home-brewed "'and a slice of fine roast beef up at the house, "'if you should be so inclined.' "'Why, as to that,' said I over my shoulder, I neither eat nor drink with a man who doubts my word. Meaning those forty shillin'? Precisely. Well, said he, twisting his whisker with a thoughtful air, if you could manage to make it twenty, or even twenty-five, I might make some shift to believe it. Though it would be a strain. But forty! No, Tam, I can't swallow that. "'Then neither can I swallow your beef and ale,' said I. "'Where be goin?' he inquired, rising and following as I made for the gate. "'To the end of the road,' I answered. "'Then ye be goin' pretty fur. That there road leads to the sea.' "'Why, then, I'm going to the sea,' said I. "'What to do?' "'I haven't the ghost of an idea,' I returned. "'Can you work?' "'Yes,' said I. "'Can ye thatch a rick?' "'No.' said I. Shear a sheep? No, said I. Guide a plough? No, said I. Shoe a horse? No, said I. Then you can't work. Lord love me. Where have you been? At a university, said I. Where, master? At a place warranted to turn one out a highly educated incompetent, I explained. Why, I don't hold with education, nor book learning myself, master. Here I be, with a good farm, and money in the bank, and can't write my own name, said the farmer. And here am I, a first in literae humaniores, selling my waistcoat that I may eat, said I. Being come to the gate of the yard, I paused. There is one favour you might grant me, said I. As what, master? Five minutes under the pump yonder, and a clean towel. The farmer nodded, and, crossing to one of the outhouses, presently returned with a towel, and, resting the towel upon the pump-head, he seized the handle, and sent a jet of clear, cool water over my head, and face, and hands. "'You've got a tidy, sizable arm,' said he, as I dried myself vigorously. "'Likewise a good, strong back and shoulders. There's the makings of a man in you as might do summit. Uh, say, in the plough or smithin' way. But it's easy to see as you're a gentleman. More's the pity, and won't. Howsoever, sir, if you've a mind to a cut of good beef and a mug of fine ale, say the word. 
First, said I, do you believe it was forty shillings, yes or no? The farmer twisted his whisker and stared very hard at the spout of the pump. Tell you what, said he at length, make it thirty, and I give you my Bible oath to do the best with it I can. Then I must needs seek my breakfast at the nearest inn, said I. And that is the old cock, a mile and a half nearer Tonbridge. Then the sooner I start, the better, said I, for I'm mightily sharp-set. Why, as to that, said he, busy with his whisker again, I might stretch a pint or two and call it thirty-five, at a pinch. What do you say? Why, I say good morning, and many of them. And, opening the gate, I started off down the road at a brisk pace. Now, as I went, it began to rain. Book One, Chapter Nine, in which I stumble upon an affair of honor. There are times, as I suppose, when the most aesthetic of souls will forget the snow of lilies and the down of a butterfly's wing to revel in the grosser joys of, say, a beefsteak. One cannot rhapsodize upon the beauties of a sunset or contemplate the pale witchery of the moon with any real degree of poetic fervor or any degree of comfort, while hunger gnaws at one's vitals. For comfort is essential to your aesthete, and after all, soul goes hand in hand with stomach. Thus I swung along the road beneath the swaying green of trees, past the fragrant, blooming hedges, paying small heed to the beauties of wooded hill and grassy dale, my eyes constantly searching the road before me for some sign of the old cock tavern. And presently, sure enough, I espied it, an ugly, flat-fronted building, before which stood a dilapidated horse-trough and a battered sign. Despite its uninviting exterior, I hurried forward, and, mounting the three worn steps, pushed open the door. I now found myself in a room of somewhat uninviting aspect, though upon the hearth a smouldering fire was being kicked into a blaze by a sulky-faced fellow to whom I addressed myself. "'Can I have some breakfast here?' said I. "'Why, it's all according, master,' he answered in a surly tone. "'According to what?' said I. "'According to what you want, master.' "'Why, as to that,' I began, "'because,' he went on, administering a particularly vicious kick to the fire, "'if you was to ask me for a French hortelan, or even the ump of a camel, being a very truthful man, I should say no. But I want no such things, said I. And how am I to know that? How am I to know, as you ain't set your art on the ump of a camel? I tell you I want nothing of the sort, said I. A chop would do. Chop, sighed the man, scowling threateningly at the fire. Chop. Or steak, I hastened to add. "'No, it's a steak,' said the man, shaking his head ruefully, and turning upon me a doleful eye. "'A steak,' he repeated. "'Of course it would be. I suppose you'd turn up your nose at ham and eggs. It's only to be expected.' "'On the contrary,' said I. "'Ham and eggs will suit me very well. Why couldn't you have mentioned them before?' "'Why, you never asked me, as I remember,' growled the fellow. 
slipping my knapsack from my shoulders i sat down at a small table in a corner while the man with a final kick at the fire went to give my order in a few minutes he reappeared with some billets of wood beneath his arm and followed by a merry-eyed rosy-cheeked lass who proceeded very deftly to lay a snowy cloth and thereupon in due season a dish of savoury ham and golden yolked eggs it's a lovely morning said i lifting my eyes to her comely face it is indeed sir said she setting down the cruet with a turn of her slender wrist which i make so bold as to deny said the surly man dropping the wood on the hearth with a prodigious clatter how can any morning be lovely and there ain't no love in it no not so much as would fill a thimble i say it ain't a lovely morning not by no manner o means and what i says i ain't ashamed on being a naturally truthful man with which words he sighed kicked the fire again and stumped out our friend would seem somewhat gloomy this morning said i he've been that way a fortnight now come saturday replied the slim lass nodding oh said i yes she continued checking a smile and sighing instead it's very sad he've been crossed in love you see sir poor fellow said i can't you try to console him me sir oh no and why not i should think you might console a man for a great deal why you see sir said she blushing and dimpling very prettily it do so happen as i'm the one as crossed him ah i understand said i i'm to be married to a farmer down the road yonder and leastways i haven't quite made up my mind yet a fine tall fellow i inquired yes do we know him sir with a handsome pair of black whiskers said i the very same sir and they do be handsome whiskers though i do say it the finest i ever saw i wish you every happiness said i thank ye sir i'm sure said she and dimpling more prettily than ever she tripped away and left me to my repast and when i had assuaged my hunger i took out the pipe of adam the groom the pipe shaped like a negro's head and calling for a paper of tobacco i filled and lighted the pipe and sat staring dreamily out of the window happy is that man who by reason of an abundant fortune knows not the meaning of the word hunger but thrice happy is he who when the hand of famine pinches may stay his craving with such a meal as this of mine never before and never since have i tasted such eggs and such ham so tender so delicate so full of flavour it is a memory that can never fade indeed sometimes even now when i grow hungry about dinner-time i see once more the surly-faced man the rosy-cheeked waiting-maid and the gloomy chamber of the old cock tavern as i saw them upon that early may morning of the year of grace eighteen hmm. so i sat with a contented mind smoking my pipe and staring out at the falling summer rain and presently chancing to turn my eyes up the road i beheld a chase that galloped in a smother of mud as i watched its rapid approach the postilion swung his horses toward the inn and a moment later had pulled up before the door 
They had evidently travelled fast and far, for the chase was covered with dirt, and the poor horses, in a lather of foam, hung their heads, while their flanks heaved distressfully. A chase door was now thrown open, and three gentlemen alighted. The first was a short, plethoric individual, bull-necked and loud of voice, for I could hear him roundly cursing the postboy for some fault. The second was a tall, languid gentleman, who carried a flat, oblong box beneath one arm, and who paused to fondle his whisker, and look up at the inn with an exaggerated air of disgust, while the third stood mutely by, his hands thrust into the pockets of his greatcoat, and stared straight before him. The three of them entered the room together, and while the languid gentleman paused to survey himself in the small cracked mirror that hung against the wall, the plethoric individual bustled to the fire, and loosening his coats and neckerchief, spread out his hands to the blaze. "'A good half-hour before our time,' said he, glancing towards the third gentleman, who stood looking out of the window with his hands still deep in his pockets. "'We did the last ten miles well under the hour. Come, what do you say to a glass of brandy?' At this the languid companion turned from the mirror, and I noticed that he too glanced at the silent figure by the window. "'By all means,' said he, "'though Sir Jasper would hardly seem in a drinking humour.' And with the very slightest shrug of the shoulders he turned back to the mirror again. "'No.' "'Mr. Chester, I am not in a drinking humour,' answered Sir Jasper, without turning round or taking his eyes from the window. "'Sir Jasper,' said I to myself, "'now where and in what connection have I heard such a name before?' He was of a slight build, and seemingly younger than either of his companions by some years, but what struck me particularly about him was the extreme pallor of his face. I noticed also a peculiar habit he had of moistening his lips at frequent intervals with the tip of his tongue, and there was, besides, something in the way he stared at the trees, the wet road, and the grey sky, a strange wide-eyed intensity that drew and held my attention. "'Devilish weather! Devilish! On my life and soul!' exclaimed the short red-faced man in a loud peevish tone, tugging viciously at the bell-rope. "'Hot one day, cold the next. Now sun, now rain. Oh, damn it! Now, in France, ah, what a climate! Heavenly, positively divine. Say what you will of a Frenchman, damn him by all means, but the climate, the country, and the women, who would not worship em. "'Exactly.' said the languid gentleman, examining a pimple upon his chin with a high degree of interest. Always dored a Frenchwoman myself. They are so, so, ah, so deuced French. Though mark you, Selby, he broke off, as the rosy-cheeked maid appeared with the brandy and glasses, though mark you, there's much to be said for your English country wenches, after all. Saying which, he slipped his arm about the girl's round waist. There was the sound of a kiss, a muffled shriek, and she had run from the room, slamming the door behind her, whereupon the languid gentleman went back to his pimple. "'Oh, as to that, Chester, I quarrel only with the climate. God made England, and the devil sends the weather.' "'Selby,' 
said Sir Jasper, in the same repressed tone that he had used before, and still without taking his eyes from the grey prospect of sky and tree and winding road. There is no fairer land in all the world than this England of ours. It were a good thing to die, for England, but that is a happiness reserved for comparatively few. And with the words he sighed, a strange, fluttering sigh, and thrust his hands deeper into his pockets. "'Die!' repeated the man Selby, in a loud, boisterous way. "'Who talks of death?' "'Deuce it, unpleasant subject,' said the other, with a shrug at the cracked mirror. "'Something so infernally cold and clammy about it, like the weather. "'And yet it will be a glorious day later. "'The clouds are thinning already,' Sir Jasper went on. "'Strange, but I never realized until this morning how green and wonderful everything is.' The languid Mr. Chester forgot the mirror and turned to stare at Sir Jasper's back with raised brows, while the man Selby shook his head and smiled unpleasantly. As he did so, his eye encountered me, where I sat, quietly in my corner, smoking my negro-head pipe, and his thick brows twitched sharply together in a frown. "'In an hour's time, gentlemen,' pursued Sir Jasper, "'we shall write fini to a more or less interesting incident, and I beg of you, in that hour, to remember my prophecy, that it would be a glorious day later.' Mr. Chester filled a glass, and, crossing to the speaker, tendered it to him without a word. As for Selby, he stood stolidly enough, his hands thrust truculently beneath his coat-tails, frowning at me. "'Come,' said Mr. Chester, persuasively, "'just a bracer.' Sir Jasper shook his head, but next moment reached out a white, unsteady hand, and raised the brandy to his lips. Yet, as he drank, I saw the spirit slop over and trickle from his chin. "'Thanks, Jester.' said he, returning the empty glass. "'Is it time we started yet?' "'It's just half-past seven, answered Mr. Chester, consulting his watch, "'and I'm rather hazy as to the exact place.' "'Deep Dean Wood,' said Sir Jasper dreamily. "'You know the place?' "'Oh, yes.' "'Then we may as well start, if, if you are ready.' "'Yes. It will be cool and fresh outside.' "'Settle the bill, Selby. We'll walk on slowly,' said Mr. Chester, and, with a last glance at the mirror, he slipped his arm within Sir Jasper's, and they went out together. Mr. Selby, meanwhile, rang for the bill, frowning at me all the time. "'What the devil are you staring at?' he demanded suddenly, in a loud, bullying tone. "'If you are pleased to refer to me, sir,' said I, "'I would say that my eyes were given for use.' and that having used them upon you, I have long since arrived at the conclusion that I don't like you. Ah! said he, frowning fiercer than ever. Yes, said I, though whether it is your person, your manner, or your voice that displeases me most, I am unable to say. An impertinent young jackanapes, said he. Damnation, I think I'll pull your nose. Why, you may try, and welcome, sir, said I, though... I should advise you not, for, should you make the attempt, I should be compelled to throw you out of the window. At this moment the pretty maid appeared, and tendered him the bill with a courtesy. 
He glanced at it, tossed some money upon the table, and turned to stare at me again. "'If ever I meet you again,' he began, "'you'd probably know me,' I put in. "'Without a doubt,' he answered, putting on his hat and buttoning his befrogged surtout. "'And should you,' he continued, drawing on his gloves, "'should you stare at me with those damned impertinent fish's eyes of yours, "'I should most certainly pull your nose for you, on the spot, sir.' "'And I should as certainly throw you out of the window,' I nodded. "'An impertinent young Japanapes!' said he again, and went out, banging the door behind him. Glancing from the window, I saw him catch up with the other two, and all three walk on together down the road. Sir Jasper was in the middle, and I noticed that his hands were still deep in his pockets. Now, as I watched their forms getting smaller and smaller in the distance, there grew upon me a feeling that he who walked between would never more come walking back and in a little having knocked out my negro head pipe upon my palm i called for and settled my score as i rose the pretty chambermaid picked up my knapsack from the corner and blushing aided me to put it on my dear thank you said i and kissed her this time she neither shrieked nor ran from the room she merely blushed a trifle rosier do you think i have fish's eyes my dear la no sir handsome they be i'm sure so bright and black with little lights a-dancin in them there sir do her done and go along with you by the way i said pausing upon the worn steps and looking back at her by the way how far is it to deepdene wood book one chapter ten which relates the end of an honourable affair some half-mile along the road, upon the left hand, was a stile, and beyond the stile a path, a path that led away over field and meadow and winding stream, to the blue verge of distant woods. Now, midway between these woods and the place where I stood, there moved three figures, and far away, though they were, I could still make out that the middle one walked with his hands, those tremulous, betraying hands, thrust deep within his pockets and presently i climbed the stile and set off along the path sir jasper said i to myself somewhere in the background of my consciousness i had a vague recollection of having heard mention of such a name before but exactly when and where i could not for the life of me remember sir jasper said i to myself again it is a very uncommon name and should be easy to recollect i had often prided myself on possessing a singularly retentive memory more especially for names and faces but upon the present occasion the more i pondered the matter the more hazy i became so i walked on through the sweet wet grass racking my brain for a solution of the problem but finding none when I again looked up, the three figures had vanished where the path took a sharp bend round a clump of pollard oaks, and determined not to lose them, I hurried my steps. But when I, in turn, rounded the corner, not a soul was in sight. The path sloped up gently before me, with a thick hedge upon my right, and, after crossing a brawling stream, 
lost itself in the small wood or coppice that crowned the ascent. Wondering, I hastened forward, and then, happening to look through the hedge, which grew very thick and high, I stopped all at once. On the other side of the hedge was a strip of meadow bounded by the brook I have mentioned. Now across this stream was a small rustic bridge, and on this bridge was a man. Midway between this man and myself stood a group of four gentlemen, all talking very earnestly together, to judge by their actions, while somewhat apart from these, his head bent, his hands still thrust deep in his pockets, stood Sir Jasper. And from him, for no apparent reason, my eyes wandered to the man upon the bridge, a tall, broad-shouldered fellow, in a buff-colored greatcoat, who whistled to himself, and stared down into the stream, swinging his tasseled riding-boot to and fro. All at once, as if in response to some signal, he rose, and, unbuttoning his surtout, drew it off and flung it across the handrail of the bridge. Mr. Chester was on his knees before the oblong box, and I saw the glint of the pistols as he handed them up. The distance had already been paced and marked out, and now each man took his ground. Sir Jasper, still in his greatcoat, his hat over his eyes, his neckerchief loose and dangling, one hand in his pocket, the other grasping his weapon. His antagonist, on the contrary, jaunty and debonair, a dandy from the crown of his hat to the soles of his shining boots. Their arms were raised almost together. The man Selby glanced from one to the other, a handkerchief fluttered, fell, and in that instant came the report of a pistol. I saw Sir Jasper reel backward, steady himself, and fire in return. Then, while the blue smoke yet hung in the still air, he staggered blindly and fell. Mr. Chester and two or three more ran forward and knelt beside him, while his opponent shrugged his shoulders and, taking off his hat, pointed out the bullet-hole to his white-faced second. And in a little while they lifted Sir Jasper in their arms, but, seeing how his head hung, a sudden sickness came upon me, for I knew, indeed, that he would go walking back never more. Yet his eyes were wide and staring, staring up at the blue heaven with the same fixed intensity as they had done at the inn. Then I, too, looked up at the cloudless sky and round upon the fair earth, and in that moment I, for one, remembered his prophecy of an hour ago. And indeed, the day was glorious. End of section four.